Good morning, Renewal. Welcome to another weekend of our stay-at-home Sunday morning podcast. This week, we are continuing through the book of Judges. You know, I've been reading through much of this area of the Bible over the last couple of months as I'm reading through the Old Testament in my Read Through the Bible in a Year plan. And uh, as I was reflecting on Judges chapter 2, which is where we'll do most of our reading today, I just couldn't help but think about all of the remarkable things that God had done in order to get Israel into the promised land. We have the record of the miracles happening in Egypt, the 10 plagues that uh, were judgment on Pharaoh for not letting the people go. We have the parting of the Red Sea and the swallowing up of the Egyptians' army right after Israel got out of Egypt. And then in the desert, we have all these accounts of God caring for the people. He provided this manna, the bread from heaven each day. He provided quail for them to eat. Uh, God brought water out of a rock for them more than once. And anytime they were attacked or people opposed them, God would deliver them from their attackers. They even had miracles as as uh, amazing as their shoes and their clothes never wore out the whole time they were traipsing around uh, the desert for those 40 years. And then there were also these miracles of judgment, uh, times when God appeared in supernatural ways in, in judgment against those who would rebel against God. We had a number of plagues. We had the ground swallowing up people. We had fire coming out of the presence of God. You know, by the time they entered the promised land, they'd been living a couple of gen- a generations worth of miracles uh, from God and undoubtable interventions of this divine being into their physical world. Of course, when they did enter into the promised land, God parted the Jordan River for them and the walls of Jericho were felled by their voices. And and then through Joshua's narrative of the, of the conquest, we have other miracles, uh, the sun standing still in the sky, God going before his people, giving them victory time and time again. And uh, you know, you would imagine with this kind of a special relationship and with these, with these sorts of experiences with God, gosh, how would anyone ever walk out on this? And yet, in Judges chapter 2, verse 10, we read that after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, the generation that came in and conquered the promised land, uh, the author of Judges records that then another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. As I read that line, I'm thinking, this can't be right. How could all of these people forget what God had done. How could they not know? I mean, their parents had watched the walls of Jericho fall. How would this entire generation of Israelites be so struck with amnesia that they wouldn't, that the relationship between this entire generation of Israelites and God is that they wouldn't know the Lord or know what he had done for Israel? How do you get to a place where you don't know the stories of the Red Sea or the miracles in the desert. I mean, here we are thousands of years later, and we're fairly familiar with these stories. How do people forget so easily? I don't know why people forget so easily, but I do know that forgetting is kind of what we do as human beings. And God knows that too. He anticipates humanity's forgetfulness. There are so many warnings and, and reminders in scripture to to remember what God has done. And and as God uh, interacts with humanity, we even see uh, stories of him in scripture trying to lead humanity into behaviors that would help them 
remember what he has done. Uh, Back in Joshua chapter 4, there's a story of the nation crossing the Jordan River. And after the whole nation had crossed the river, the Lord says to Joshua, I want you to choose 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe, and I want you to tell them to take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan. From right where the priests were standing, the priests went out into the river and stood, and the river dried up, and then the people crossed through. He says, I want you to take 12 stones right from where the priests were standing, and I want you to put them down in a pile here in the place that you're staying tonight. And so Joshua does this, and they they gather the stones, and they, they make a little altar, and he says to the Israelites that these stones are to serve as a sign among you and even in the future. He says, when your children will ask you, what do these stones mean? You're going to tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and that, and that we crossed the Jordan on, on dry land. These stones are going to be a memorial to that forever. And the story in there in Joshua chapter 4 says that the Israelites did just what Joshua told them. They took the 12 stones to the middle of the Jordan, uh, according to the number of the tribes of Israel, and they carried them over to the place where they were camping, and they put them down there. And, uh, and then Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests had carried the Ark of the Covenant and stood. And then it says, and these stones are there to this day. And we read that phrase quite a bit in in the book of Joshua and in the book of Judges, too. Of course, when we read that, it doesn't mean that those things are still there on the day that you read those words in your Bible. It means that those things were still there to the day that when these accounts were first written. Anyhow, God tells the people, I want you to set up this pile of rocks so that you'll be reminded of my miracle on the Jordan River that day. And you'll be able to tell future generations. They'll ask, what do these rocks mean? And you'll be able to tell them about uh, what I have done for you here in this day, what God has done for the people, who God is, how he's shown himself faithful to those who are faithful to him. And I think God tells them to do this because he knows that these people might forsake him, that the children might pursue other gods, and that if they forsake the Lord of their ancestors, things are going to go bad for them. Now, I want you to think back on the last year of your life. Think about what has God done? Have you had any Jordan River, Walls of Jericho type moments? Have you had moments where God's faithfulness has been manifest in your life in in some significant way? Maybe God's faithfulness hasn't been so noteworthy and significant. Maybe it's been small things. Has God shown himself faithful in the little things in your life? As you think back over the last year, stretch that out now. Think back over the last five years. Has God come through for you in any way? Think back on the last decade. Think back on the last generation or look back on the last couple of generations of your family history. Has God been faithful? Do you know the stories? Have the experiences of the people of God going back generations in your family, if if Jesus' followers go back generations, have, have you been able to live in those experiences and be familiar with them? You know, we, we believe, because Scripture teaches us, we believe that God is faithful. That he, We believe he has been faithful in anyone's life. I can tell you God is faithful in your life, and that would be an undeniable truth. We, we understand this on an intellectual level because that's what the Bible teaches us. But if we have no actual memory of these events, if we've never 
if we have no memory of experiencing God's faithfulness, if the only reason we say that God is good is because we understand it on an intellectual level, in other words, I say it because the Bible says so, or because my Sunday school teacher told me, versus saying that God is good because in that moment when I needed him, this is how he came through. There's a real difference between those two scenarios. One is faith that is built on experiential knowledge and not just simply an intellectual knowledge. And I think, you know, one example, knowing that God is faithful because I've seen his faithfulness in my life, that's faith that's built in walking through the storms of life under the shadow of God's wing. That's a different kind of knowing than simply knowing which answer to write in the bubble sheet on a test. And I think one of the key things for us to understand about this generation that's now living in the book of Judges in chapter 2 is that they didn't remember what God has done. The generation in their experiences and, and even in their collective memory, they were removed from a faithful God. Somewhere there was a breakdown. The generation that had gone before them had failed to pass on the stories. They'd failed to raise them in an environment of faith in God, in an environment where they're living for God and, and where living for God was a part of their everyday life. And so this generation, as we turn back to Judges chapter 2, we're now in verse 11, this generation of Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And they served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who brought them out of Egypt, and they followed and worshipped the various gods of the people around them. And this aroused the Lord's anger. Verse 13, because they forsook him and served the Baals and the Asterisks. And in his anger against Israel, the Lord gave him into the hands of raiders who plundered them and sold them into the hands of their enemies all around. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. And they were in great distress. They don't know God. They forsake God. God gives them over to their enemies and in a sense, God's saying to them, look, you want to forsake me and you want to worship these other gods? Okay, I'll hand you over to these other gods and, and we'll see how well that goes for you. That's essentially what God is saying to them And yeah, down in verse 20 of chapter 2. It says, the Lord was angry with Israel and he said, because this nation has violated the covenant that I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I'm no longer going to drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. Instead, I'm going to use these nations to test Israel and to see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. And then it says the Lord allowed these nations to remain. He didn't drive them out uh, at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. So we see here, in a sense, God's plan is, is changing because of the disobedience of his people. You know, God paints the picture for Moses and says, I'm going to drive all the people out ahead of you little by little. And then here we see God saying, I'm not doing that anymore. The plan is changing. I'm not going to drive the nations out. I'm actually going to leave them here to test my people, to see whether they will really be faithful. Now, I don't know how you want to reconcile God's providence and his will and his foreknowledge with verses like this. In one sense, that's up to you. Does it mean that God actually changed his plans? Did, or does it mean that he willed them to be disobedient? His plan was for them to be disobedient all along. Uh, you know, Jesus followers really have a bit of a conundrum here and, and one that they haven't been able to settle 
despite their best efforts to figure that out for a couple thousand years. So I, I don't think we want to get into the weeds on that. But I believe the takeaway for us in this story is that we need to live somehow connected to the legacy of God's faithfulness and pass that legacy and living in that legacy onto the next generation. Or we're doomed to just repeat the same mistakes of our Israelite brothers and sisters before us. And as important as it is for us to live connected to the legacy of God's faithfulness to his people, it's important. It's also not very easy at all. And in reflecting on that, I've got three reasons that I just think it's it's not very easy. One reason, I think, is because we live in an affluent society that has a lot of freedoms. And there's something about not having to actively trust God for your next meal that makes it really easy to forget that your next meal is a manifestation of God's faithfulness. I'm recording this on a Thursday afternoon. It's late in the afternoon. My stomach is beginning to growl. I'm feeling a little bit hungry and beginning to anticipate whatever delicious dinner we're going to have tonight. And it's, it is uncharacteristic for me when I hear the grumblings of my stomach to turn to God and say, Lord, would you feed me my daily bread today? Because I take it for granted that I have a refrigerator and freezer full of good things to eat. And if that's running low, I can go to a store and I can give them my money and they will give me good things to eat. Similar to Israel who forgot who provided for them in the desert, I think it's easy for us to forget that it is God who has brought us this far. It's difficult just because we don't have to oftentimes worry as much about our next meal. So it becomes difficult to credit those things to God. Another thing that makes it difficult is that we have our own cultural narratives and our own values that tend to canonize our own faith and make it really easy to uh, to embrace ideas that, that aren't really kingdom-centered. We've talked about this principle of the canonization of God's people being uh, one of the main themes in the book of Judges, how God's people uh, gradually over time begin to look more and more like the people around them rather than the people that God has set them apart to be. And unfortunately, we see that tendency happening throughout the church's history as well. Now, one unique aspect of the canonization of uh, American Christians, I think, has to do with this idea that we are convinced that we can educate people into the kingdom. You know, since the Enlightenment, the momentum of formal training in the world has increased towards institutions of education. You know, we do our formal learning in a classroom. And in the 19th and 20th centuries especially, we saw in the church in America a wholehearted embrace of that style of learning. And so Sunday school became a big part of church life and discipleship and and sermons became more of educational lectures. And after a couple of generations of going all in on educating people into the kingdom, something started to happen. In the mid-20th century, young people increasingly would grow up and leave the church. To the point where it's become a tradition now, we just take it for granted. Pastors all around just assume young people are going to grow up and leave the church. And I think part of the reason for this is that the body of Christ and belonging to God was never meant to be something that we train for in a classroom. Belonging to the family of God isn't like a club or a status that we achieve by what we've learned or what we know. 
it's a relational family. And faith isn't effectively passed on to the next generation by educating them in the gospel. It's passed on by immersing people into the family of God and the experiences that we have as we walk together as the body of Christ. I'll never forget, I spent uh, around five years doing youth ministry, and and I had kids in my youth group one time whose parents had them enrolled in our local Christian school. Uh, but I remember being so surprised to learn that these particular parents didn't attend any church, didn't belong to any church, and, and the, the kids growing up experience, they'd never belonged to any kind of a church, never been a part of a church community. And yet the parents are thinking, well, we've got them going to a Christian school where they're going to learn about God. We're doing our part to raise this generation to walk with God. And I I think they weren't. They're missing the boat. I mean, a Christian education is no substitute for walking with the Lord and living as a member of the body of Christ. A memorized scripture is no substitute for the enrichment of our faith that happens when we walk together following Jesus together. There's something fundamentally wrong with any study of Scripture that doesn't result in someone loving the Lord and loving the family of Christ even more. And so we don't want to fall into the trap of trying to, the cultural trap of trying to educate the next generation into the kingdom. It's proven to not be effective for a few generations now. And what we need to focus on, I think, instead is integrating the next generation, immersing the next generation in kingdom living. And as they live as the family of God, uh, then the question comes not, do they want to stop attending church when they get older, but how could anyone ever walk away from this kind of a family? Another hurdle that we have, I think, is that we live in a culture of instant gratification. And so it's so easy to fall into a mindset of, well, what have you done for me lately in my relationship with God and my relationship with the Lord's people? You know, our culture has conditioned us to feel inherently dissatisfied if our relationships or if what we're experiencing in any given scenario is anything but instant gratification. And yet instant gratification is almost the opposite of what scripture teaches us to expect in our in our interactions with God. You know, God's revealed in scripture as a father who loves his children. And so <laughs> we should expect that a father who loves his children would, wouldn't constantly dole out instant gratification. What kind of a father would he be if he just, poof, gave you everything you wished for? I mean, that, that would lead to spoiled kids and good parents don't spoil their kids. If we're to live the kingdom life, there's this reality that we simply have to accept that we are not going to find a lot of instant gratification living the kingdom life. Uh, If we're going to live the kingdom life, we need to learn uh, to endure seasons of waiting, to be determined, to labor faithfully in in the hope of eternal rewards, uh, rewards that are down the road. And as we walk in this way, we invite the next generation to live with us in this venture and to uh, to move counterculturally toward this tendency to want instant gratification all the time and to be willing to do hard things for a long period of time so that we can reap a uh, good harvest someday. There's this really moving scene at the end of the book of Joshua where uh, Joshua gathers the nation of Israel together after much of the conquest is complete. 
And he begins to recount to the people all that God has done for them. And then he says to them, I want you to fear the Lord and to serve him with all faithfulness. This is in Joshua chapter 24. Uh, I'm picking it up in verse 14. He says, I want you to serve the Lord in, in, to, sorry, I want you to fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. He says, I want you to throw away the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you'll serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're now living. But as for me and my household, we are going to serve the Lord. You know, I think each of us has a choice to make. And really, in many ways, it's a daily choice uh, or maybe a choice that we make in one great day and then, and then a choice we get to live out daily after that. But I really believe we, God has given us the freedom to make this choice. And while the next generation is living in our household, I think we have a great deal of influence to, to help make that decision for them as well. But who are you going to serve today? Who are you going to live for? Will you worship the gods of our society, the gods of self and comfort and pleasure, Will you put your hope and your trust in the American gods of money and guns and government? Or, or will you and your household serve the Lord, serve Yahweh and worship him only? I think in serving him and living for him uh, and inviting those next generations, especially the ones that live in our homes, to, to live for him along with us, we can avoid the pitfalls that we saw here in Judges chapter 2 of a generation growing up Uh, having been the people of God, but growing up with no idea who the Lord is or what he's done for them. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a faithful God. I pray that you'd be reminding us, your people, all week long of your faithfulness, that we would see your faithfulness manifest in our lives, in the activities we engage in this week, in the circumstances that have led us to the place where we are today, that you would open our eyes to see your faithfulness and to experience it. And then help us to build our own memorials. Help us to pile our own rocks to to share with the next generations uh, the stories of how faithful you have been, how you've come through. And, uh, and let us be people who hold you in the center of our hearts and minds and who are not quick to forget who you are and uh, what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.